0: Good morning. So, it won't surprise you to know that I have, as I think all preachers must, a love-hate relationship with lectionary, because you never know exactly what texts are gonna be assigned to you. And this week's texts, as you've heard already from the Psalm and from the Gospel, are concerned with the themes of the wrath of God, the last judgment, and eternal damnation. Who doesn't want to tackle that in a sermon? In fact, in the psalm, we talk about wasting under the wrath of God. In the gospel, we end with the story of a slave cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Old Testament reading for the day from Zephaniah reads like this. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, those of you who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. At, ta- at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs. The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. The New Testament reading for the day is from 1 Thessalonians, in which Paul talks about the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night or like birth pangs to a mother who's suddenly giving birth. And in all of those texts, we are confronted with the wrath of God, the threat of judgment, and the threat of eternal damnation, the threat of hell. So, I think this is especially unsettling for those of us who've suffered what we might call PCTSD, which is post-church trauma stress, right? You've, you've undergone not just traumatic disorder, but tra- traumatic disorder from your church experiences. I, I was, as many of you know, I was raised in a church that was deeply disordered in how it spoke about the wrath of God. I, I can remember when I was younger than my youngest is now having nightmares about the rapture, nightmares about being caught in the judgment of God. One of the most vivid I have is I was four or five years old. I'm asleep and I'm wearing a cowboy shirt. Some of you've heard this story before, but it's, it's worth sharing again. I'm, wear, I'm wearing a pearl snap cowboy shirt and I have the top two buttons unbuttoned. And in my young Dreaming mind, that was risky. I wasn't so sure that that was modest in the way the Lord wants us to be modest. And suddenly, I'm in church, I'm seated between my parents, and suddenly two angels appear. And of course, in my imagination, those angels look like Nordic gods long, flowing blonde hair, piercing blue eyes, milky white skin. And they're, I realize, making their way through the congregation, sorting people into who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And in my young mind, I'm thinking, if I don't get this button, this pearl snap snapped, before they get to my pew, I'm going to be separated from my parents eternally. They're going to heaven, I'm going to hell. And so I'm frantically trying to snap this pearl snap. And alas, I wake up before they get to my pew and before the pearl is snapped. And I wake up screaming. My grandmother comes running into the room, wondering what in the world has happened. Oh, nothing. I was just having a nightmare about the rapture in hell. And there are many, many more stories uh, like that that I won't share with you because I think I would end up traumatizing you. So if you have some share in that kind of post-church trauma, I think texts like these are are disturbing, either mildly disturbing or wildly disturbing. And I think we all know this without controversy, that we're living in a, a time of incredible outrage. Like you cannot move right now in our world, left or right, pun intended, without being met with outrage, constant outrage. And I, I don't think I'm alone in this in that I feel on edge all the time. That my, my own anger is never far away from me. And I don't like being angry. I don't like being angry because I've experienced too much of the other side of that. And so to be saddled with these texts, was not, was not anything I welcomed. But the more that, the more that I thought about them, the more, the more that I thought it is important to, to face it head on. What do we do with the fact that Scripture is filled with talk about the wrath of God and the coming judgment and the threat of damnation? And how do we face that honestly as good news and not as cruelty? from God not as a god who is vengeful again many of you will have heard this i mean I, I i was given a picture of a god who comes first in mercy but last in judgment so that when he came among us in jesus at christmas he comes like a babe he lives his life like a lamb he dies for us and so he comes first mercifully offering salvation But for those of us who resist it, who don't button our cowboy shirts all the way up to the top, or whatever other sin you have in mind, those of us who resist the mercy of God are met last with the lion who comes in vengeance. So that the first time he came forgiving, patient, reaching out to us in our brokenness, but the last time he will come angry, bent on revenge, with fire in his eyes. And I think that that sense of who God is hangs over so many of us. Not everyone, hopefully, thankfully, but many of us. And then when that account of God gets worked into our experience in our families and our experiences in our churches, where we are inevitably wounded by people in their anger, it becomes incredibly difficult to understand how it can be good news that God is angry. How it can be good news that God is coming to judge. But the gospel insists that it is good news. It is good news that God is coming. It is good news that God is coming to judge. And in fact, if you read scripture carefully, you will see that scripture is filled with hope of the coming judgment of God. Prayers for God to come. In fact, the prayer of the old testament is how long O lord before you judge we are we are left to ourselves god come in your judgment and the prayer of the new testament is come quickly lord jesus come quickly lord jesus come quickly as judge bring your judgment because only your judgment can save us from our judgment only your wrath can save us from our wrath and so I, I think we have to hear this as good news. So I, I want to turn to the gospel text and look closely at it in just a moment. But let me say just a, f- a few things before, before we do that. First, I think it's absolutely crucial that we come back to this truth over and over and over again. God, God's anger is not like our anger. Humans and the church has always been, been incredibly careful to make this distinction between what it means for God to be angry and what it means for human beings to be angry. So when we are angry, our anger explodes, our anger flashes, our anger rises up suddenly, and we are carried along by it. We are at the mercy of our emotions. But God, the church has always said, is not at the mercy of his emotions. God is not carried along. He doesn't sometimes wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He doesn't have moods. In fact, what the church has said is that God is identical with his attributes. God doesn't have emotions. God is his own justice. God is his own mercy. God is his own judgment. So that God doesn't have a, a, an emotional life that swings back and forth. He doesn't have moods, much less a mood disorder. He's, he's not bipolar or schizophrenic. God doesn't sometimes feel this way and other times feel that way. God is always internally, eternally, consistent with Himself. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we say that God is faithful, we are also saying that He is at one with Himself and that He's not carried away by whatever happens. He's not caught by surprise or caught off guard. He's never put on the defensive. God does not react. God presides and sovereignly reigns and provides for us. God is not reactive. So before we say anything else, we have to say, whatever it means to talk about the wrath of God, it means something very different from talking about our wrath, which, again, flashes up, explodes, and lashes out against others in reaction. But God's wrath is nothing but a way of naming an aspect of his care for us. George MacDonald says it this way, God's wrath is nothing but the furthest reach of His love as we resist it. God's wrath is nothing but the furthest reach of God's love as we are resisting it. So that the difference between the wrath of God and peace with God is not in God, but in us. The fire of God's love, when we resist it, is experienced as wrath. But it remains the purifying love of God. God is not changing. We are changing in response to God. And that means, secondly, God is never angry at us. He's angry for us at what is destroying us. So when we talk about God's anger, we have to understand what it means for God to be angry and how that's different from our anger. But we also have to understand God's anger is never aimed at us personally. It is aimed at what is destroying us personally. God is angry with wickedness. And his anger toward the wicked is for their good. It's for our good that God is angry with us, as I'll say in just a moment, is a sign that he cares for us. God is not angry at us. He's angry for us at everything that is being done to us and everything we're doing to destroy others. And so I think it comes closer to the truth to say God is angry with us, in the sense that he's come near to our experience. He comes close to our experience to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us, in our anger, so that he can retrain us, so that we can learn to be angry as he is angry and not angry as we are in our sins. This is why Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. And sometimes... It is a sin not to be angry. It depends on what your anger is in response to. And for this, we, to understand this, we have to turn to Jesus. We have to look at the life of Jesus. And Jesus is sometimes angry. The Gospels are, are very careful about the way they describe the internal life of Jesus. There, there's not a lot said that gives us a glimpse into his psychology. We don't get inside Jesus' head, in the temptations, for instance. But there are moments where we can see that Jesus is angered. Just a few moments. I'll, I'll talk about two. One is when he sees the temple overrun with people who are merchandising the sacrificial system and marginalizing people who want to pray because they can't meet the, the expectations of the financial system, and as you know, Jesus cleanses the temple and says, "You have made my father's house, which is a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of robbers, into a den of thieves and so we see there Jesus' anger and it reveals right that god's anger is like this humanly experienced God ang- god's anger is like this but what's what's important to stress here about Jesus anger is what it's aimed at. That Jesus is not angry that he is being rejected. This is is a striking aspect of Jesus' life. Jesus is constantly met with disrespect and rejection and ultimately betrayal. In those moments, he is never angry because he has no ego. He's not offended that he's not being taken seriously. He's offended that what God has made for all has been taken over and turned into a system that is for a few. So he is angry at the injustice we have made in the world that keeps people from their life with God, that keeps them from the forgiveness and joy that is meant for them. So Jesus is angry, as God is angry, but he's not carried along by it. He's not overcome by it. It's an expression of his love for those we are neglecting those who are suffering because of the systems we've made. That is Jesus' anger. There's another instance at at the tomb of Lazarus where Jesus is either deeply grieved or angered. It's hard to tell the difference in terms of how to translate the terms. But he sees all of this weeping, and something in him responds. Again, not that he's personally offended, not that his reputation, not that his persona is being questioned. He's grieved and angered at what sin has done to our perception of the world and our understanding of life and death and sorrow and loss. And so we see in the life of Jesus this anger. On the cross, though, Jesus is not angry at those who've abused him. He's praying for their forgiveness. And this, this I think, is crucial because a lot of the times when we talk about Jesus on the cross, we talk about him as the victim of God's wrath that God's wrath is coming against Jesus. But it's nearer the truth, I think, to say that Jesus is the wrath of God, embodied against everything that would destroy us. And when he embodies the wrath of God, he embodies it in sacrifice and forgiveness and words of reconciliation. You noticed in the Old Testament reading today, we're told on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, The wrath of God will come and destroy those who are against God. That prophecy was fulfilled in the life and death of that Nazarene who's hanging on the cross crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do not count this sin against them. They don't know what they're doing. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The sacrifice God brings that is his wrath against what we've made of the world is not a revenging king who slaughters his enemies, but the Messiah who lays down his life for his enemies. And that's what we need to catch in this parable today. That there is always a surprise with God. He always fulfills his promises, but he always fulfills his promises in a way that turns out to be infinitely better than we could have imagined. And that's true also of God's threat of his wrath and the threat of his judgment. This is what Jonah knew. You remember, God speaks to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But what does Jonah know? There's always a surprise in the threats of God. And that surprise is always a hidden promise. In whatever God threatens, there is a promise hidden of reconciliation and forgiveness and new life. And Jonah knows this, and that's why he flees. So let's see how that plays out in the gospel text. So we have the story, as you know, as we've heard, of a master who goes away and leaves some of his property with three servants. In this, it's hard to know exactly what a talent represents here, but almost certainly it's a way of naming a huge sum. Some people say that this is basically 15 to 20 years wages that are left with, in these talents to these servants. It's a huge sum. And so he leaves five with one servant, two with another servant, and one with the last. And... As you know, we heard today, the one who was given five talents, this huge sum of money, he immediately puts his money to work. And when the master returns, he goes to the master in in confidence and boldness and says, listen, you gave me five talents, I've made five more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of your Lord, enter into the happiness of your master. The other servant, the one who was given two Again, a huge sum, doubles it, comes back when his master returns home and says, listen, you gave me two, I doubled it. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of your Lord. And then the third servant, who was given one talent. Huge sum, not as large as what was given to the others, but still a, a substantial gift, an, an, an entrustment a weighty entrustment, and he hides it in the ground. And then he says to the master, and this, this is key, and this is where we start to hear that something is up in the parable. He says to the master, I knew you were a harsh man who reaps where you do not sow and gathers what you did not scatter. And so for fear that I would lose it, I hid it in the ground and have kept it safe, and now I return it to you. Here is what is yours. And then the master in the parable responds with, O foolish and worthless slave, be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. How can this be good news? Because on the face of it, it looks like a God who gives us a chance, and if we mess it up, we pay for it eternally. We pay for it with infinite, eternal, unending torment. If we had more time this morning, I would tell you about some of the sermons on hell that I've heard and how, vivid, how vividly they marked me. As, and, and But even as a child, I could recognize something's out of proportion here. I mean, this servant did fail. He did fail, but is his failure which can be measured. I mean, it it is only a failure to double his master's money. Is his failure really deserving of infinite outer darkness and torment? I mean, wouldn't it have been enough to just say, I'm disappointed in you, give me my money back. I won't do that again. It just seems wildly out of proportion. And that's the point. That's the point. Because if we read this parable closely you will see that there are all kinds of details that open us up to something else is happening than what we're expecting. The first thing is notice the master, he, the master, when he responds to the unfaithful servant, he says, if you knew that I was someone who sow, reaped what I didn't sow and gathered what I didn't scatter, then why didn't you entrust, at least entrust my money to those who could gain interest with it? Notice what he doesn't say back. The servant says, I know you are a harsh man who reaps where you do not sow and gathers when you do not scatter. But when the master responds to him, he doesn't say, yes, I'm a harsh man. He says, but if that's true, if you really believe that I, that I reap where I don't sow, why didn't you just entrust it to someone for interest? And then notice... The master does not ask for the money back that he gives the servants. There's a transition that happens in each one of them. When he entrusts them with his property and then returns, they've doubled it. He doesn't take it back. What he does is make them his equals. Enter into the happiness of the master is a way of saying to them, you're no longer servants. I've entrusted you with my property And instead of you making a return on the investment for me, you've proven that you're ready to be sons and not slaves. You're ready to, to come into the master's house rather than living outside the master's house and serving me. So what's happening with this last servant is that he has not yet shaken free of his own projections on his master. He is still, like many of us, so afraid of God. He's afraid to be himself. And what's happening in this moment is a transformation for his sake. And this is the heart of the gospel. If you you see the, the, the larger scope of the gospel of Matthew and the larger scope of all the gospels, you start to notice these things. The first is, in Matthew's gospel, the first time the word darkness is used, it's a word of promise about Jesus' ministry, which is just launched. It says, and... In this way was fulfilled the promise that those who set in darkness have seen a great light. Those who set in darkness have seen a great light. That's how the gospel opens. And three times in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a parable that ends with this formula. And they will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But all the way through the gospel, in, in cases that would take hours to unpack... Every time there is a judgment like that, it's a reversal of what people expected. And notice, in the Gospel of Matthew, whoever preaches next week gets to deal with this. In the Gospel of Matthew, the very next thing that happens is Jesus teaching about the sheep and the goats. And you remember, right, what separates the sheep from the goats is only the care they give to those who are hungry and in prison, those who have been cast out. And what does he say? What you did to the least of these, you did to me. So here's what the gospel teaches. That Jesus is not only the master who entrusts us with his gifts so that we can become sons and daughters with him, but he's also the servant who gets cast out. He is the one who goes into outer darkness. Do you know how the gospel? The last time the word darkness is used in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is on the cross, darkness descends over the city, and in the darkness Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the servant we cast out because he was worthless. So that Jesus is not only the master who threatens to punish us if we're not faithful, he suffers the punishment of those who reject him on our behalf and in our stead. He is the servant cast out in outer darkness, so we're not alone. And notice what the servant said in his own accusation against God. There is the seed of the promise. You are a God who reaps where you did not sow, and gathers where you did not scatter. And this is what tells us, right? God is not simply rewarding or punishing us for how well we perform. He's not, he is the God of sowing and reaping. But more than that, he's the God who reaps where he does not sow who brings life from the dead. It is true that the way we live has consequences. It is more true that in spite of the way we live, we remain open to the God who is relentlessly merciful and forgiving, who comes to us even when we turn away from him and finds us however far we run from him. So if we are this servant who is so afraid of God that we can't be ourselves. He, instead of simply casting us out into the outer dark, he comes into the outer dark with us and begins to reap where he did not sow. Begins to give us what we did not earn. Begins to afford us what we have failed to accomplish. And the master says something, I'm almost done. The master says something back to this servant. He says... Jesus, giving an explanation of the parable, says, Those who have much will be given more, and those who have nothing, even that will be taken away from them. Those who have nothing, even that will be taken away from them. Now, what sense does that make? If you don't have anything, how could that be taken away from you? There's nothing there. What could be taken away? But this, again, is the seed of the promise inside the threat. What he means is, if you live your life out of fear of me in a way that makes it impossible for you to be who you are, I will keep coming. I will keep coming and keep coming until you are reduced to nothing by the consequences of the way you've lived And then I will come and take the nothing away from you. And what will be left? Everything. That what Jesus is doing for each one of us, and this is the gospel. The gospel is not, if you do well with what God gives you, God rewards you. The gospel is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not, God loves those who love him. The gospel is, even while we hate God, he loves us. The gospel is not, God helps those who help themselves. But when we could do nothing, when we were dead in sins, God raised us together with Christ. The heart of the gospel is that God is infinitely better than you can imagine. And so I'm leaving you with this. The root of sin in my life and your life is a projection onto God of the fear of our failures and the fear of the failures of people around us. We imagine God is an infinite version of our own failure, our own unfaithfulness, but God is better than you can imagine. And whether you think of yourself as the servant with the five talents or the two or the servant with the one, understand that if you are faithful, you enter into the joy of the Lord. And if you're unfaithful, God will come to your sorrow and find you there and stay with you there until you are freed up from your own projections onto Him and learn to trust that He is a God who reaps where He doesn't sow, not because He's capricious and wild and unpredictable, but because He is relentlessly, infinitely merciful. And there is nothing you and I can do, no failure that's deep enough, that gets us free from the everlasting arms. And when you know that, you can say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, wherever I am. Amen.